Welcome, everybody, to Please Don't Punch the GM Adventures in Gaming Therapy. My name is Adam Davis. Uh, my name is Adam Johns. That's right, we're both named Adam. Um, <laughs> hello. Uh, we founded Wheelhouse Workshop to help teenagers build social skills using role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons. And we founded Wheelhouse Workshop in the Seattle area. We both live in Seattle now, below. I'm from San Antonio, so it's really exciting to be back for PAX. Um, <laughs> Um, I have a a master's degree in education with a specialization in drama therapy, and I am a school teacher in the Seattle Public Schools. I have a master's degree in couple and family therapy, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in the Seattle area, specializing in seeing geeks and gamers in therapy. But before we did any of that, we were gamers. We were gamers since we were little kids. We started playing role-playing games. How old were you, Adam? Like eight or nine. I think I was something like ten. And when we met in grad school, we realized something, and that was that these games that we had loved for all those years were good for us. That no matter what reason why we chose to play those games, they had all these benefits that we used to make make our lives better. Um, And that's why we founded Wheelhouse Workshop, because we wanted to help these teenagers by intentionally focusing on all those reciprocal skills you get by playing role-playing games, by creating in-game scenarios that are targeted to their real-world areas of social growth. So you, you guys love these games, and when I say these games, especially in the context of this talk, what I'm talking about is role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games. Uh, we play primarily Dungeons & Dragons in our groups, but 5th uh, edition with a lot of homebrew rules and a lot of adjustments to it. But uh, really when I say that, I'm covering like all the bases for, for all of that. Um, but everybody comes to the table. They come to it for different reasons. There's a lot of different reasons, and that's actually one of the things that makes these games, makes tabletop role-playing games so unique and so wonderful, is that it has a lot to offer to people. There's a lot of reasons that make it fun, that make it a good reason to to show up and keep showing up week after week or month after month. So raise your hand if this is true for you. If you love the thrill of fighting in role-playing games. Uh, That feeling of dealing the final blow to the necromancer after he wiped out half of your team. (laughs) Or people who love of the strategy and the, the tactics. I want to sneak around uh, from behind and get the plus two bonus for flanking, and then since I'm attacking from stealth, I get the advantage on the attack roll. <laughs> Did anybody notice that he mixed up the rules from 3.5 and Pennsylvania? <laughs> You're my people. Um, or the people who love the, the uh, acquiring new skills and abilities, looking forward to leveling up. Um, when my monk like that. When my monk is level 20, he's going to be super powerful, especially with his four levels of rogue to help supplement. You're level 3. Yeah, but but in time, in time he'll get there and it's going to be awesome. Or the, the people who love creating new characters all over and over again with this almost infinite palette. Yeah. Um, my wizard starts off in wizard school, but he only stays there for a little while because then a cult takes out his school and he has to pick up the sword and heavy armor in order to help defend himself because his spells aren't powerful enough. You can't cast an armor. Well, I'm going to take two levels of wizard and then four levels of fighter, and I'll take the feet so that I can cast in heavy armor um, to help, help, help do that. Uh, then there are the beer and pretzels people, people who like the game for the social interaction. They like to just hang out with their friends, witty banter, inside jokes, or maybe even... The characters that the, the GM makes up? Oh, welcome to my haberdashery. What can I help you with? Uh, well, I'd like a hat. Uh, well, that is what we specialize in. Largely purple hats, but uh, we do have a nice selection of green this time of year. I'll take a green hat. A green hat, very well. That'll be 100 billion gold. I'll take a purple one. Well, that, that, that'll be 10 gold. <laughs> um, and then there are also the people who like the game for the story. 
<laughs> yeah, I like it. Uh, as you strike the final blow to the henchman of the, of the uh, uh, goblin king, you, he falls to his knees and you ro- walk up and you grab him by the cuff of his collar and you pick him up and you look at him in eye level and you stare him down and you reach up and you rip his mask off as you realize it was old man McGillicuddy the whole time. <laughs> and I would have my way with it too if it weren't for you meddling kids. <laughs> the chances are really good that if you like these games, you like them for probably a big combination of those reasons. And maybe there's one that draws you to the game, but... But it's the combination, it's the the variance in all of that that really keeps you coming back again and again. But what we're interested in is what you take away from the table. So whatever the reasons that bring you to it, there's a lot of stuff that this these games, the tabletop role-playing games, give you. Just naturally, just by sitting down and playing the game, you take away a lot of benefits. We actually tried to make a list of all of the reasons why RPGs were good for you at, at our office, and we pulled a whiteboard from beginning to end, top to bottom, uh, with all the different reasons why RPGs are good for you. So when we were coming to this panel, we had to figure out what we were going to talk about, and just listing all the reasons might not be that entertaining. So we narrowed it down to four. Um, so th- these four are they're the, maybe the four big ones, the four ones that you can expect to take away from just about any table you sit down with um, and to benefit from in that way. But they're also the four biggest things that we tend to focus on in our social skills groups, the things that we put a lot of emphasis and intentionality into helping to do. And those are perspective taking, frustration tolerance, creative problem solving, and cooperation. And perspective taking is this the act of imagining what the world looks like through someone else's eyes. And it's built into all role-playing games, and it's one of our primary focuses because it's the core seed of empathy, which is something we're really working on as a society, not just for young people. And it's built in to every role-playing game because in every role-playing game you're playing a character, and that character has a different set of of ideals and beliefs than you do. all perspective taking is kind of based on theory of mind. Are there any like Psych 101 former or present Psych 101 students out there? Um, theory of mind is the idea that I understand that other people know different things than what I know. And what's kind of interesting about theory of mind is a common concept in psychology is that um, we're not born with theory of mind. We're actually we actually develop it at a really early age. So um, there's a series of studies um, that are usually called the unexpected contents tests, and these have been around for a long time. They kind of help reveal the idea behind theory of mind. And three year olds, when they they tend to fail this test, and the way the test works is basically like this: the researcher walks up and he's holding a box of candy or something like that, shows it to the three year old and says, uh, "What do you think is in this?" And the three year old will say, "Candy." And then the researcher will open the box and reveal that there are actually colored pencils inside. And the three-year-old will be excited because it's something different than what they expected. And this researcher will close the box again and then turn and say, now what does your friend think is in this box? If I ask them the same question, what will they say? And the three-year-old will respond, colored pencils. Because the three-year-old doesn't yet have the idea that that person that's next to them has a different set of knowledge than their own set of knowledge. They assume everybody knows exactly the things that they know. Now, if you ask a seven-year-old the same thing, a seven-year-old will pass it with flying colors. They know the difference. They know that that other person is also going to be tricked by this lure of candy that the researcher is trying to give them. Um, So they they know how to watch out for that. Um, And that's a simple example, but... Honestly, we work on this as adults. We work on this for most of our lives. We're constantly trying to develop the idea of theory of mind, of understanding other people 
have different knowledge than we have, especially when we're driving in traffic in our 30s. And, <laughs> and that guy just cut me off, and I have to make it to a panel at this convention. <laughs> um, and we still have to practice the idea that like, they don't know that I am more important than them in this particular situation. <laughs> And that, that's an important piece because understanding that we're still developing those things is a big part of what we put into our groups. It's a big part of what we understand about the teens that come into our groups. We consider the teens in our wheelhouse workshop groups as having what we say lagging social skills or underdeveloped social skills. Um, and that means that they need extra experience in being able to develop those social skills, to develop the ability uh, that ability to relate to others in that way. Um, and perspective taking especially is a huge focus in our games because it promotes the idea of being able to understand the people that you game with, the people that are at the table around you. And we do this intentionally by giving one player a character information that he has to tell to the rest of the party members or by having the players play their characters as if they don't know the things that the player knows. Um, an example of this is we, were, we had a, a campaign where they were battling against shape-shifting monsters from beyond time and space. And it was straight out of They Live, if anybody's ever seen that movie. Um, and these shape-shifting monsters had infiltrated the, the realm and were disguising themselves as normal people. And the only way to determine if a character played by the game master was actually a shape-shifting monster was by looking through this monocle that they'd gotten from the evil Dr. Ventrani. So they, they called this the Ventrani lens, and we gave this to a player who was struggling with engagement, who uh, would occasionally zone out or occasionally um, lose interest in the game. So in giving him this, we gave him an opportunity to be essential and for the rest of the teammates to really rely on him. And so whenever they interacted with a non-player character, they would always have to, in character, remind him to use his Ventrani lens to see if it was actually a shape-shifting monster from beyond time and space. And then he would look through the lens, and then the game master would say, oh yeah, it's got the tentacle things, and it's a, it's a monster. And the other players, even though they knew that it was a shape-shifting monster from beyond time and space, they had to wait for him to, in character, give them the signal that it was, in fact, a shape-shifting monster. And this, this worked most of the time. Um, sometimes it can get a little frustrating. <laughs> well, which is actually um, brings us right into frustration tolerance. So um, frustration, as you guys know, is kind of a, a part of this game. It's kind of built into the game, actually. Yeah, there's a 5% chance on every 20-sided die roll you're going to get a critical fail. <laughs> So we actually, uh, to reveal a little bit to you, we actually take it a step further and we often create purposeful situations in the game to be extra frustrating for our players. Um, you know, like every good DM does. Um, and failure, I mean, the, the reason for that is that failure and understanding that some challenges require a lot of extra effort. They require a lot of extra times of, of approaching it. It's a super important piece to developing skills, but it's also an important piece of the game. The trick is an understanding that there's opportunity and even enjoyment in fumbles. There's an enjoyment to the game even when you're missing, even when you're, you're rolling, a, rolling a one on your, on your spot check. Um, frustration tolerance is about the idea that you're developing skills to be able to handle that frustration. That when I roll a one, I don't table flip. Um, it is the ability to create skills for that. And one of the best skills for that is positive reframe. 
where you take a failed role or, or a failed situation or a, a thing you didn't do so well and you find the inherent fun and good stuff in that bad situation. In our tables, there's no such thing as really a bad role. There's actually a, a joke at the table on my Tuesday night group where they say a, a one is awesome and a two is actually the worst role because of the stuff we come up with whenever there's a critical fail. And um, uh, as an example, uh, we, we always try to turn turn critical fails into something crazy, hilarious, or some, some other thing. And uh, there was one situation where we were going through a dungeon and they went into the next room, and I described this gigantic, monstrous spider was slowly descending from the ceiling with acid dripping from its jaws and its mandibles clicking. And I had him roll a save against fear, and one of the players critically failed. And I could have had her suffer a penalty to her dice rolls or get disadvantage, and instead I wanted to turn it into an opportunity for some team building and a little bit of collaboration. So I had her, she was playing a gnome, and I had this gnome jump up and scream at the top of her lungs and jump on the back of the fighter and hang on for dear life. And then instead of turning this just into a simple bad situation, the party had to shift their energy and then end up talking the gnome down and <laughs> helping her calm down. And they went through, you know, try deep breathing. Um, try thinking about something that's not a giant spider. <laughs> and it provided us an opportunity to turn this, this like what would have been a, a terrible role into an opportunity for us to do a little creative problem solving and also have a discussion about what helps us calm down. Uh, that actually is um, really great for transitioning into creative problem solving. So uh, whenever you have to jump in and adjust to a surprise thing that suddenly come up, um, creative problem-solving skills are the thing that kind of help you carry through that. Um, and that's also, I'm sure you guys have realized, um, no matter how hard you try to railroad your players, they will create a problem-solve all over the place. <laughs> so we tend to promote it. We want to we wanna encourage a lot of creative problem-solving. Um, and because of that, we often are creating challenges that are open-ended, that have multiple solutions, that have multiple ways to solve them, which is slightly different than a, a riddle or a puzzle where it has a, a specific way to solve it. Because when you have a, an open-ended challenge or an open-ended uh, puzzle in front of you, you have the opportunity to um, create, to creatively use your equipment, your skills, your teammates even, uh, to help solve that problem. So creative so problem solving essentially uses flexibility, it, it builds resilience, it uses frustration tolerance. It uses a lot of frustration tolerance. Um, it's putting a problem in front of somebody and saying, here's the problem, here's this thing in front of you, what do you do now? So we actually, when we intentionally create problem-solving situations, what we do is what we, is what we call a lateral thinking puzzle. And I'll walk you through how all this works. Um, we have a very common puzzle that we like to give our players very early on. We call it the lever puzzle. And the lever puzzle uh, essentially goes like this. You walk into a room, and the door slams behind you. And you see around you that it's a, a kind of square-looking room. There's not a whole lot in it. There's dust on the walls. You can see mold growing. Uh, clearly, nobody's been in this room for a long time. And across the way, you see a wooden door. And there's a portcullis blocking the door, bars blocking the door. Um, the only thing in the room is a big, giant lever in the I middle of the lever. That's pretty much what every player does first. As you pull the lever, you hear gears clunking under the ground beneath you. You hear gears churning and, and things coming to life, machinery coming to life within the walls as you, as you hear everything clunking and chunking together. Um, and then you see as spikes lower down from the ceiling and the ceiling starts slowly lowering towards you. That is where the prescribed part of this puzzle ends. 
Everything else from this puzzle I've not planned out. There's no particular solution. There's no particular way to get out of this room to stop yourself from being impaled by a ceiling full of spikes. Um, everything else from here on in is just the creativity of the players. It's whatever they can creatively come up with to help solve this puzzle. And we've had all sorts of different solutions. Everything from uh, wizards who want to cast detect magic and then find the, the me magical slash mechanical gearing that's in the walls and then break open the, the walls and rip the gearing out to uh, people flying up near the spikes and then trying to jam stuff into the into the <laughs> ceiling to help stop it. Um, my favorite, one of my favorites is a cleric who picked up the dwarf barbarian and then rammed him into the into the door with, with his permission? He, she had his permission um, until until they could break through, um, which which actually worked really well. You you have a few good stories. Uh, yeah, I actually ran this on on Tuesday, and because this lever room was was a secret door off of a supply closet or something, and they were searching for the secret door, and he critical failed, so we found a box of pineapples, and he decided to add these pineapples to his inventory, and then those became the way to solve the lever puzzle. Um, because they found behind a secret compartment the gears, and they just started throwing the pineapples in <laughs> And the pineapples gummed up the gears and stopped the spikes. That was brilliant. <laughs> um, or there was another time I, I had a, a player that I actually had never played the game before, so I was so proud of him when he discovered this, uh, or he came up with this solution. And he uh, was playing a wizard, and he wanted to cast the spell Dimension Door. And for those of you that don't know Dimension Door, it's kind of like a teleport. You choose a spot within a certain distance, so he just could choose a spot on the other side of the door to basically teleport to. But the thing about Dimension Door is if you accidentally teleport into something, into a physical object, you'll be shunted, which, is, which means you're randomly placed somewhere within 100 feet or something like that. And... Um, in order to prevent that, because if he was shunted back into this room, they would all be in the same terrible situation they were already in, um, he convinced his teammates to wait until the exact last moment. So he described them all holding each other by the shoulders and, and slowly crouching as the spikes descended, <laughs> and then cast a mention door. So he, he got everybody into the next room, and he was, in fact, shunted. So he was randomly placed in that room because the spikes were just right there above his head. So proud of him. <laughs> and actually, usually the best solutions, the ones that we're most proud of, but also the ones that I find the most amazing, are the ones that involve teamwork. The ones that involve great cooperation between characters relying on someone else's skills or someone else's magical ability in order to help achieve and, and come out of the other end of it. Um, which brings us to cooperation. Uh, cooperation is one of those life skills that is so important because we need other people all the time. Two is better than one. The game is inherently team-based, although I'm sure that there's some guys in the back who are clearly aggressive enough that they would disagree with me. But it's a cooperative game. Uh, it is a game where you are supposed to be working together. You are an adventuring party. You are um, working together to help get to a common goal, all, all as one group. But we want to take it one step farther than that. We, we don't want to settle for cooperation, so we try to make our game collaborative. And collaboration being not just two is better than one, but that if we all play our roles just right, and if we all do what's ours to do, we're actually more than the sum of our parts. So we do a lot of world building in our games to really set the collaborative tone at the very beginning of the game, where we, whenever we enter into a new city, I take my DM screen and I fold it down, which is my signal that we're world building, and we create the name of the city with a little whiteboard that I have, and we create the city one letter at a time, so sometimes it ends up this horrible cluster of consonants, <laughs> renting into crisps, 
<laughs> and then uh, we go around and we'll all say something we know about the city. Oh, it's floating above the, above the ocean. It's got um, people made of rock, all kinds of crazy things we'll come up with before we enter into the city. And then we kind of improvise. And then I put the DM screen back up, and that signals that I'm back in my role. Um, and it's fundamental to the way that people play at Wheelhouse Workshop Groups. You should tell the big aqua story. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, once the same party that jumped on the back and was screaming earlier with the spider, and they're going to the same dungeon, and they were about to go into another door. And uh, I paused the game, and I put down the DM screen, and I had them think back to their character's childhood. And a, they had all heard a cautionary tale about a horrible, monstrous troll. And so we created the name of the troll and came up with the name Bia Goffma. It was awesome. And then we, I had the, the players each go around the circle and say something that their character had heard when they were a child about Bia Goffma. And because these tales all take different forms in all the different towns they were from, even Grizzle Pissick, um, the, they could come up with anything. So um, one person said, well, I heard Bia Goffma snatches children out of their bed and they're asleep. Well, I heard Biagakma punishes uh, kids who lie by eating them. And somebody else said, oh, my uncle makes us go into the woods and leave offerings to Biagakma or else he'll punish our village. So we did all this great creative backstory for Biagakma, and then I lifted my GM screen back up, which signaled that I was back in control. And then when they entered into this next room, the light was dark. And as their eyes slowly adjusted, they heard a voice come from the darkness. Hello, look who's come to play with Bia Goffma. <laughs> and that was like six months ago. And they still talk about Bia Goffma. They still ask me to do the voice. <laughs> I, love, I love the Bia Goffma voice. Um, that's actually the, the way that you take story away is maybe one of the most important things. And it's not one of the skills we listed, but it's, it's something that is true of these games. They're the stories that you take away from this. The stories that you're going to tell six months from now, uh, a year from now, ten years from now, uh, those stories are important. Those stories are, are maybe one of the biggest reasons you come to the table. They're also one of the biggest things you take away from the table. And in addition to, I mean, these skills, which are, are absolutely spectacular and they help you become better, more confident, creative, and socially capable people just by sitting down and playing the game, but on top of that, you're also taking away these great stories. But when you have knowledge, when you have an understanding, uh, here's what these games give you, here's the, the amazing other ways that these games impact you, then you get an extra ability to be intentional about it, to be able to walk up to your game and think, this is how I want to approach my game, this is what I want to take away from, from my game the next time I sit down at the table. And that intentionality, that piece, that's what's going to help you be a better player what's going to help you be a better DM, uh, what's ultimately going to help you be a better person when you walk away from the table. Speaking of better people, um, the enforcers, I think, put a mic up over here, and we're going to transition into question and answer. So if you guys want to start getting up and asking questions, there's a microphone right there in the center. If you want to, uh, we, we also, while you guys are kind of getting up and, and shifting and stuff, um, we would love to hear stories. We would love to hear just your experiences as um, as gamers and how the game has impacted you. Um, if we don't get to your question, if we don't get to um, engage with you in that way, please 
hop on our website, uh, wheelhouseworkshop.com, uh, our Facebook page, our Twitter page. I think we have an Instagram now. As of this weekend. Um, and hit, hit us up on any of those. We absolutely love engaging with other people, hearing about the experiences they've had or, or how they've been able to use uh, the games for helping people better themselves. Uh, why, don't, why don't we take it away with the first question? Um, hi. So, first of all, I just want to say uh, my name is Carolyn. Hello. Uh, I'm a psychology undergrad student in my final semester and hopefully will be attending a, a master's program next fall and uh, be a therapist as well. And um, yeah. I just want to thank you guys for like doing this talk because it's really inspiring. I've never personally heard of anything quite like this before. I've heard of drama therapy and that kind of thing, but I think it's really great to sort of be able to make something new and, and incorporate this for kids. Um, I want to work with children specifically who have suffered from sexual assault and sexual abuse, and they do typically, or not typically, but sometimes have really difficult emotional problems as they grow older. Grow older. And so um, it's nice to see a, a different way to sort of approach that. So I guess my uh, question would be to you, what has been um, sort of the most difficult part of uh, getting this program off the ground and uh, keeping it running? <laughs> The most difficult part has been getting this program off the ground. <laughs> it's, it's challenging. I mean, it's great to come to a place like PAX where we can talk about role-playing games and everybody nods their heads like, oh, yes, of course, this is good for you. Um, it's, it's a different game trying to explain that to uh, a counselor in their 60s who maybe uh, had an experience in the 80s with mazes and monsters. You know? <laughs> you know? Or Tom Hanks. <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I, I definitely agree with that. I, also, running a business, um, to be honest, like he's a teacher and I'm a therapist, and neither of us know how to run a business. So uh, that, that's, that, that's, been, that's been kind of a challenge, kind of getting started. Um, I will say there's, there's some stuff that was surprisingly easy. Um, these groups, we've been doing this three years. Um, we keep clients very easily. Like People come in, and then they don't want to leave. Um, I'm sure you guys know, once you start playing... Uh, you, you're, you're going to keep coming back to the table so there's going to be that itch that, that yearning to come back and play another RPG um, and that definitely sticks up in our groups the, the kids that come into our groups they get social interaction out of it and they get amazing experiences and they have a fun time with it um, I do want to kind of name drop for you and maybe anybody else who's listening there's a group in Pennsylvania called the Badana Group um, and they have worked with uh, sexually aggressive youth and um, people who've suffered through trauma using role-playing games. And they would totally be worthwhile to look up. Um, and they are, they, we went to a convention of theirs called Save Against Fear. It was all about games and in therapy. So I would definitely recommend it. That is really awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. And thanks again for doing this. Yeah, it was a, a great job pursuing a degree in psychology. That's, I approve. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hello. Um, my question is, how young do you usually start having people come to your games? Do you like have an age limit generally? And there's a part two, but what's that? Oh no, you can you can. Okay, well then, like, how is that? Is um, and is it just generally? Uh, do you have kids with like that are on say the spectrum, like people with autism, or like how how is that? How has that been for them? Um, so the the first question when we started off. Groups, we just saw teens. Our cutoff was basically 13 to 19. 
Um, and then we started getting some people who are a little older. I think we have someone who's 23 or 24 in our group. Um, and then we also have a, a full group of younger kids who are all uh, 10 and 11. We don't mix the, the, the sort of a cutoff that happens uh, developmentally around, around the teenage years. We don't want to mix the 11-year-olds necessarily with like the, the 16-year-olds. And we tend to do kind of a mixed model with a lot of the groups. But um, I think you could take it as young as like 7 and 8 uh, depending on the role-playing system that you're using. There's a great system that's being developed by Monty Cook Games uh, called No Thank You Evil um, that's specifically being developed for younger kids. Uh, and it's it's awesome. I think it comes out next month. I'm very excited for it. Um, the second you can, can I answer both questions? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> the second question, um, yes, we see a, a wide spectrum of autism-adjacent disorders within our groups. So everything from... Um, ADHD and uh, what would have been considered Asperger's before it was removed from the DSM uh, to um, like a- actual autism or, or even sometimes just lagging social skills, no real diagnosis. Um, and it works great for them. In fact, that's maybe our, our target, target audience is, is within that area because it's opportunity for them to have clear rules-based structures for how to do things. And predictability. And predictability. It's, it's an opportunity to um, be there and be social in an environment that they know that they have some control over and an opportunity to step back when they get frustrated because um, it's their character that's in this situation and not themselves. Uh, it works perfect for that group. Okay, like, uh, thanks for... Thanks for that, because uh, I have a friend who's actually got an, a seven-year-old son that is autistic, and sometimes she worries about, like, how he's going to be when he gets older, or certain other things, like how, like, certain like, good ways to help him get adjusted or make, to help him make friends, so, I've, and you said the game was co- that's coming out next month is called No Thank You Evil? Yep, by Mighty Cook Games. Uh, Who's the woman who developed? Shanna Germain. Shanna Germain is uh, did a lot of the development on it. She's she's spectacular. We've had some great chances to meet with her. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hi, um, I I have a bachelor's in psychology, and for my sociology project, I'm 29 now, so this was a long time ago. <laughs> but this is how I got in the DMV because I decided that oh, this is a strange group of people. <laughs> I'm going to study them. <laughs> so I started as an observer. And I ended up falling in love with it. And my paper was just going to be about D&D players, but it ended up being about the scapegoats in D&D groups because I joined several different groups. And it seems like they're always in the scapegoat. And people take things out on them in the game, too, as well as in real life. Um, so interestingly, when you talk about like this as a group of people, uh, the, the scapegoat idea falls in line really well, along with bullying. Um, I had a... a, a kid in one of my groups who uh, was clearly bullied at school. And I'm sure you guys can imagine uh, the teenagers that are sitting down in our groups are often the teenagers that are bullied at school. Um, But what was really interesting was that this particular kid was uh, bullied in the group too. So all of these other kids who were bullied at school were were showing up and then bullying this kid. Um, And there's lots of theory of psychology for role and and things like that. But what, what I realized was that um, that was the role that they were comfortable in. Um, they were comfortable being bullied. That was how they saw themselves. Um, and so even when they're put into a group where it's a bunch of kids who don't really want to bully people because they get bullied at schools and they don't want to translate that. But this one kid was so comfortable in that role that he would 
put himself constantly in that role by being extra annoying to other players, by doing things purposefully to their characters to mess things up in the game. And it wasn't until I gave him another option that he had another chance to to uh, take on like the hero role finally for his character. That he finally got a chance to like take on something else that was not being the bullied kid. And you wanted a story, this is short, but I was a wizard and I cast a stinky cloud in a dark, small room with all my characters, all my friends. Uh, they all failed the dice save, so <laughs> everyone hated me. <laughs> I, I just can imagine the name your wizard got after that. Prompt Hi, so um, I've got sort of a two-part question. Is, um, has any, is, has any um, research or studies been published on using role-playing games and kind of uh, like, you know, in a, in a therapy journal or something? And if so, which kind of shakes your head, do they use published games like Unity or do they, is that part of the research? Do they kind of make the framework up? Um, there's a lot of research on play and a lot of other it's sort of like um, a lot of the research on video gaming you can kind of make assumptions based on about motivation and things like that so there's a lot of research you can claim as background information but there's not been I don't to my knowledge really anything saying that role-playing games cause X, Y, and Z. But there are, is research out there that says um, like narrative play makes you better at um, a delay of gratification and we're doing narrative plays so therefore people who play RPGs should be better at delay of gratification so there's a lot of adjacent studies that we can use but nothing that we know of yet but we're once again the Bodana group that Adam mentioned earlier is they're really doing some amazing work they're writing a book and, and starting this work of creating the research that we can use to publish and then get some more credibility there's also a, um, a great website um, that does have, I mean, there have been occasional um, qualitative studies and things like that for, for RPG, usually like single individual and look at how, how games have impacted them. Um, but there's a great website called RPGresearch.com uh, run by a, name, a guy named Hawk Robinson who's uh, amazing and he has been doing, he's been collecting and gathering research for everything related to RPGs and RPGs and therapy for 11 years. Including LARPing. Including LARPing. As it's, it's incredible. Um, don't be too daunted by his website because it's a little difficult to navigate but there's a lot of good information on there if you can, if you can kind of dig into it. Uh, RPGresearch.com and Hawk Robinson. Thank you. Hi. Um, um, my question was actually kind of related to that. Um, I'm a music therapist, um, so I'm very happy. <laughs> I think what you guys do is really awesome. And there's, it seems like there's a lot of opportunities for stuff like that. Have you guys ever thought about like, presenting with uh, like creative arts therapies in general? Um, there's actually a drama therapy conference in Seattle um, in October, and we're planning on, we're submitting, they haven't gotten back to us yet, but there's a lot to be said for the creative arts therapies and this sort of movement, because um, one of our, another one of our, our colleagues um, did a master's thesis about how applied role-playing gaming as essentially sit-down drama therapy. Um, so there, there's movements in the creative arts field to accept kind of the, the freaks that we are sometimes doing these alternative therapies. <laughs> Um, can, I also just wanted to say, if, if you ever get the opportunity, I would love 
the image in my head of being able to like play music and D and D and have it be therapeutic all at the same time. That was like an incredible image in my head. I thought I would, I would love to. Hear. I, I yeah. did that once. T- take on the bard role and just run with it. I, 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 totally, I, I did that. Did you do that? I did that. I had we had, we had to play instruments to come, go into a magic portal, and they all there was one person who played the drums on the table and one person who p- pretended to play the guitar. Yeah. 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 That's it. I've never heard that. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there a specific way that you deal with like uncooperative players? Players like to do what they want when they want. They don't like to just cooperate. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, the the short answer is it all depends on the player. Um, the, the, there's a, almost always a reason why a player is choosing to be uncooperative. And we find that a lot of our players really want power. They want power and they want control. And so we try to find other ways to give them that power and control, either by collaborating on the narrative and they get to come up with some background information about something or we use some information that they really want to include in the story. But we try to generally find other ways. It's not normally about the thing that it seems to be about. Yeah, I think ultimately nobody necessarily wants to be uncooperative. They they just want to take on take on that that role of having more power within the group or or having control over what other people do. Um, there are certain things that we do in our groups uh, really specifically to to stop some of that behavior. Stuff like we don't allow them to attack each other. It's just not allowed. When they try to do it, we we stop the game and we go. Just so you know, we're not going to allow you to attack each other. We're just it's not going to happen. Um, it makes the game really boring. Uh, eventually, you guys will fight, and then one of you will die, and then that person will be really upset, and then everybody else just has to sit around and watch them. That's super boring, too. Um, so we, we sort of just stop stop doing that. But there's some stuff. You can be uncooperative without just straight up attacking uh, the other players. Um, the other things are the tried and trues. Um, have them rally together over a common cause. Um, you should tell the Seamus story. Oh, yeah. Um, so we, whenever we start the games, because we don't always know the, what the players are coming to us as far as their background knowledge, and so some players will come to us with pre-made characters, and um, we have everybody start off in a, in a soup kitchen because we don't have taverns in our games, so everybody sits around and drinks soup, soup out of mugs. <laughs> so they met up in this soup tavern, and... Um, just to like set up the MacGuffin to start off the plot, and the uh, they're all sitting around with Seamus, and she, we we have lots of NPCs in our games. That's a, one of the ways we uh, cultivate the enthusiasm and the cooperation is by having NPCs that all everybody likes. And so there's always this soup maven named Seamus, and Seamus comes around and serves everybody soup, and he says, "What kind of soup do you like? What kind of soup? I have that kind of soup." And he's just this like hilarious character that the kids all love. And then um, somebody, a, a general necromancer, bursts in the door. And kills Seamus. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, everybody says, We gotta defend Seamus, we need to avenge him. You guys knew Seamus for like 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> One time we had a, that, a necromancer player who wanted to revive Seamus and ended up. Um, <laughs> he, he didn't. He wasn't. He was like level. He was, he was level one or level three or something. So he, he couldn't revive Seamus. So because he he was so he was so he really wanted to. So what we did was we let him try to cast the higher level spell, um, but he failed at it. So instead, all he did was revive Seamus's head. <laughs> 
but with the caveat that he couldn't separate himself from Seamus's head more than like like thirty feet or something like that. Like it would just be tethered to him. So now he had to carry around Seamus's head everywhere with him. In a bag. In a bag. You do, it would just put Seamus's head in the bag and occasionally open it, and Seamus would talk about his soup recipes or how sad he is that he can't make soup anymore. <laughs> <laughs> to get to get back to the point of why that's why that's important, it was an opportunity. From that point forward, they wanted to kill that general so hard. There was no there was no disagreement in the group because anytime there was disagreement, Seamus would speak up and be like, "Boy, I wish I had my body again." <laughs> they would just rally behind that common foe who a, a common cause of why why you're trying to do this mission or a common enemy who you really really hate um, which takes some good role playing uh, I like uh, role playing really annoying kids um, who who then the party just absolutely hates and they're like yay let's do this this will be spectacular and then they, they hate him and then they, they all want to get him he ends up being the bad guy usually uh, I had a, a, a gnome bard named Mordenath Nimbletoes and he had a Mickey Mouse voice and we just think the player were awesome. <laughs> they killed him uh, almost immediately. <laughs> they, they shot him in the back. <laughs> and then he came back as a ghost. <laughs> and like, I don't know what happened, guys. I was just dead all of a sudden. And then, I'm back. We can keep hanging out. <laughs> anyway, I, I hope that helps. <laughs> Practice your voices. Now. Yeah. <laughs> playing Dungeons and Dragons since I was like 12 and uh, for a while I had really and I still kind of do but really really bad like social anxiety and I found that role playing has helped out a lot with that and so this entire program sounds awesome because I can just like 10 year old me probably would have like this would have completely changed you know my life but um, I want to say real quick uh, I have a friend who's also got pretty bad social anxiety, and he really wants to play like a, a, a James Bond like suave rogue character. And uh, you know, uh, from a lot of the people that have asked advice on this, they say you know you can only be as charismatic in character as you are. And I was wondering what you guys' thoughts were on this, and how I could possibly help my friend become more comfortable playing this character. Um, we have this this theory that you play the character you need to play. That. Every time you make a character, there's some reason why you're making those choices to create your character, and also some reason why you're playing that character the way you're playing that character. I, um, when I was a kid, I was bullied a lot, and I was very overweight, and people would make Jurassic Park jokes, and they would do that and shake the water when I would walk by. Um, so I always felt so bad about myself, and I felt like I was taking up too much space that I wanted to hide. So whenever I played RPGs, and to this day when I play RPGs or I play um, video games, I always play characters who are sneaky and who could flip in and out of the shadows or really dexterous, could jump, you know, jump kick off the wall and stuff like that. And, and that character history was, has been almost my entire life. So I, I firmly believe we, we play the characters we, we want to play and that we need to play. And that we can, we can learn a lot by playing those characters. So if somebody's playing a suave James Bond character, let him be suave. Let him see himself as a suave, cool guy. Because that will help him take those things, that confidence, into the rest of his life. 
There are some things that we do, um, something that actually was brought up in an earlier panel by Ashley Brampton. I don't know if you guys, that was a panel yesterday. Um, oh, she's right over here. <laughs> um, uh, talking about scaffolding. Um, and we scaffold in a lot of challenges. We want them to be social, and we want them to feel like they can be successful at that. And sometimes that takes uh, the ability to step in and try out what being social will be like, wherever your challenge level is for that. And then to step back and, and then have be, been successful, have built up some confidence in that. Uh, so as an example, uh, if we have like a really shy kid um, who is having trouble um, even speaking up in the group, we might put his character where he has to give us rallying speech to an entire army. Um, and so he stands up there and he... Go get him, guys. <laughs> and for him, since he's never said anything at all at the table, that's a huge success. So I would say, yes, you're successful. You can see the, the army behind you rallying together. They're cheering you on. They're chanting your name. Notice, notice what he just did, though. He, he t- instead of saying your character inspired all these people, he said, you inspired all these people. They look at you, and they see how confident you are, and they see these things, and it lets this player... In- see himself as those things. Um, but if there was another player who was already kind of suave James Bond guy, I'm going to demand a lot more out of him in order to, to get that kind of reaction. I'd also say being able to rely on, on dice. This is a game where I, I can't cast spells, and I'm, I, I am not an Intelligence 20 guy. Um, and the, the dice help me live that out. If I'm not suave and can't roleplay all of that stuff, and I want to say, like, uh, I want to convince him to do better. I would just, as a DM, I would say, "Cool, give me, give me, what kind of thing would you do to convince him?" They would say, "I convince him by being demanding," and I say, "Cool, roll me a die. Let's see how that how that works out for you." And then continually ask better challenges from there from there forward that that help move that along in smaller ways. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hey guys. Um, so I recently played uh, Through Life is Strange. <laughs> and it's an awesome game, and it's a game about friendship. And I got me thinking um, about a question which would be, it might not be exactly what you guys do, but it's kind of in the same alley because you do with kids and stuff. Um, friendship uh, that, friend, that kids have this day and age, in this uh, era, where it's a lot of one-sided relationships, where it's a lot of watching Twitch streamers and uh, my boss's daughters love, you know, PewDiePie videos and going on Twitch and watching Minecraft people and all that stuff. And I just kind of want to pick your brain a little bit. Is Do you think that's healthy, good, and if so, how and why? Or do you think it's bad and if so, how and why? Maybe somewhere in the middle. Um, because those kids probably watch a lot of Twitch streamers and stuff that you do on so. um, I don't. I don't necessarily think that developing a relationship with somebody who's out of touch in in like a, a moderate way is a bad idea. We do, we've been doing that for years and years. There's uh, people who have like real deep relationships with the characters on their soap opera. Um, and, but I do think that all of that and maybe screen time in general um, is within moderation. Um, if you're spending... 12 hours a day doing watching Twitch streams. That, that might be a real problem. A lot of Twitch streamers do stream that long and people watch it all day long. Yeah, absolutely. It can be a little terrifying to think about. Um, I, I, 
as a as a therapist, my perspective is always moderation for any of that stuff. Um, and how much is this getting in the way of the other parts of your life? Um, for children, it's especially important to have social interaction. S social skills are a skill. It's like learning to play piano or something. Um, you can't sit down and then play in front of Carnegie Hall your first time playing piano. It just doesn't work that way. You've got to practice a long time. Um, and social skills are exactly the same way. You have to be practicing them. When you're not getting a, a feedback on any of that, when you're not getting, uh, it's, when it's a one-sided relationship like that, no matter how much you're sitting at your computer being like, PewDiePie, you're totally right. That's, that's, that's a great idea. Haha, <laughs> that was so funny. Like you're, that's, that's all one-sided. You're not actually practicing any social skills there. So having stuff like well, like these games, like like tabletop games, where you have to interact socially, where you have to um, practice that and have that be like a part of your regular schedule can be hugely important. Or board games, even. Board games are spectacular. For even them. video games, if you're in the same room, provide a lot of the similar sort of play-based um, neuroscience stuff that happens to your brain when you play together. Sorry, that's my, my research knowledge for he's you. A, he's uh, a teacher, aren't <laughs> um, But uh, Jane McGonagall wrote a book, Super Better, if anybody's heard of this book, um, talking about some of the benefits of video gaming. And a lot of the benefits of social video gaming, even if you're playing on... Um, if, if you're playing online, you don't get the same benefits. So if you're playing in the same room together, even if you're both staring at a screen, you can still get some of those benefits of being together and socializing. Yeah, I grew up... Like, I played baseball and stuff when I was in school, and I played a lot of EverQuest growing up, where I was playing with a lot of adults and stuff. So I was a lot of, I don't know, I feel like I matured a lot faster than my friends and stuff, so... Now it's different, though. It's not really necessarily that. It's a lot of just watching other people play games, and not necessarily playing games with other people, but... Thanks for the answer, and uh, I knew you guys are therapists, because you didn't say yes, it's good, or no, it's bad. You gave an actual cool answer. <laughs> I can't, I can't say yes or no to anything. It's just it's a curse that comes along with training. Hi, I'm Sammy. I'm a junior in high school. I was look, I'm looking into going into psychology and particularly therapy along the same kind of lines of what you guys do. So I, it's kind of really, really amazing that I was able to come to this panel and see you guys because... Yeah. Um, so what kind of advice would you give someone looking to do that kind of thing? Where where would I start out of college? What kind of things do I need to start with? Is there any way I can start with this kind of thing now or even in college? Um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be... <laughs> I gesture a lot. Adam was like telling me that I'm going to hit him during this talk. Um, I'm going to make some assumptions that you're already kind of a tabletop gamer and that, that you're already sort of involved in some of that. Mostly it's online role-playing. I'm uh, adminning in a couple of role-playing groups. Um, if you wanted to do kind of the stuff that we do, um, or if you wanted to more generalize that to gaming in general and like applying therapy in, in more of like a general gaming sense... Um, the stuff that we do, I would dig into the games. Always keep them as a part of your life. Um, as far as training and education goes, psychology, an undergrad degree in psychology has actually served me really well. That's the first time you've ever heard anybody say that. <laughs> It's because there's a lot of good general knowledge in there, um, especially if you're interested in research, if you're interested in learning about research stuff, um, stuff like an understanding of theory of mind or an understanding of basic social psychology, uh, things like that have, have really carried with me um, really well, even through my master's degree program. Um, if you want to do counseling and 
therapy kind of stuff, if you want to like help people within their lives, you have to basically go on a track for social work or, or counseling. Right. Um, and those are all going to require a, a master's degree of some kind. So uh, I would say either get a business degree and, and do a little better than we did in on learning how to run a business or uh, get a degree in psychology and have that, have that really nice foundation. And I would say start volunteering. Uh, DM at your uh, local game shop. Um, and get a chance to play with people who are who you don't know so well, or or play games if you're if you're running um, other groups or other games, play play games in new settings and in new environments as well. It's going to help you expand on those skills. And we have cards up here, so take one and then tell us your stories. Yes, Thank yeah, you. absolutely. Keep in touch with us on on how you're progressing. Thank you. Uh, thank you guys for this panel. It's been fantastic. No as, a, as a storyteller, I, I take, I'm going to take some of your wonderful, you. wonderful things like pause the game and drag people kicking and screaming the world building. <laughs> but my question is, when you find yourself with that moment where uh, it's a, a life or death struggle, a situation that's very critical, and you know that you have players that deal poorly with failure, do you do you leave it to the dice, or do you push the issue with the narrative, or how do you how do you handle it? Because if you if you're worried about the table flip, um, and from rolling one or two or whatever, because they rolled six in a row so far, do you, do you find that it's better to just put it in the hands of chance, or do you try to narrate your way out of it? Or there, oh man, there have been so many times where I regrettably asked somebody to roll a die. Um, where somebody said, like, yeah, I want to deal the final bl- epic blow to this guy. And I went, yeah, give me a roll. <laughs> and what, what do I do when they, like, I got a four. Uh, okay, well, your turn's over, so. Yes. <laughs> um, my advice would be every time before I ask somebody to roll that, and this is taking a long time to learn, and I still mess it up all the time, uh, but as a DM, Every time before I ask somebody to roll a die, I decide for myself, do I have an idea for what will happen if they don't succeed at this? Um, do I have a way, a way to, to narrate out of that or make that continually interesting? Um, and there's lots of tips and tricks that I do for helping to keep it interesting even when you miss, especially like mid-combat. Um, I always make my players describe what happens for themselves. Like, I want to know how they stood and, and how they swung their sword or what their spell looked like or whatever the case may be. Realistically, we adjust a lot of roles. There's a lot of times that somebody rolled an eight, and I was like, you know what? Yes, that hits. That's that's successful. Good job. Um, just because sometimes you just need to have those successes. Um, the other piece of that is, yeah, I would I would narrate if they're if they're on the level of frustration. There, there's two tricks to that. I would let their character be frustrated and not them. Um, this is a good ex- technique for externalizing. It actually comes from narrative therapy, um, and it's a part of the, the idea of, of moving in and out of uh, the, the aesthetic distance, which is the thing that we were working on with the shy character, where we said everything was him. Uh, we can do that the opposite way, too, where we say, wow, your character is super frustrated right now. Um, and it gives them opportunity to not be the one with the, with the problem. It's not them who's frustrated. It's their character who's frustrated. Um, and when you highlight that, when you give that... Uh, opportunity, they uh, players will jump on top of that most times. They'll, they'll go, yeah, he's he's so frustrated, he's missing every single attack, and you're like, man, that's got to be incredibly frustrating. What does he do about it? 
Um, and now he gets to put all of that on his character, and now he gets to have excitement about giving his character stuff to do. Um, the other, oh, I, I said two things, and then I forgot my other thing. Do you have another piece of advice? Can you, can you jump in and save me? Oops. <laughs> um, the, what Adam was just talking about was, is that distancing piece. I think that's been one of the most important ways that we do it. Um, if somebody does get really upset at the table and we constantly see them getting upset, we, we try to scaffold their their uh, frustration level by making them frustrated little by little and showing that they can succeed when they are frustrated. So it kind of builds. Um, we do a lot of assessment where we kind of challenge them little by little to see what their, their frustration tolerance is. But then really we're helping them put it all in their character. There's the concept that I'm used called aesthetic distance. Um, it's a, com- a concept we use in drama therapy a lot where it came from, I think, a Russian novelist was standing on the edge of a boat, and he looked at, uh, in the distance, he saw some fog, and he thought the fog was aesthetically pleasing. But this was like the 1920s or 1910s when fog was also a reason why your ship might sink. So he, if, he decided that if the fog was any closer, it might be dangerous and it would make him upset. And if it was any farther away, he wouldn't see it. So it was right there at that perfect spot where it was aesthetically pleasing. And we use that same concept with our players. If they are too connected to their, their character, if they roll the, the die that fails, and they say, I can't do anything right, then they're too close. And it's our job to distance them a little bit. But also, if they're too far distance, like the, the player earlier who said, uh, yeah, my character is going to say something really a brave, then we can just make them the brave character. That answer your question? Yeah, no, that's, thanks, that's perfect. So a lot of my questions have actually been answered in the waiting, so that's nice because it's hard to prioritize. Um, I am a professional counselor here oh. in San Antonio, awesome. and I have not used RPGs because that's such a, a complex idea. Like, I found Flux is perfect for kids with ADHD or trauma where they're externalizing, and that's, like, really great. Um, but that's in the context of an established therapeutic relationship with assessment and all of that involved. And I'm wondering about the context of what you do in that sense. Is there um, a referral process, psychosocial assessment, that goes into kind of as people join your group, the way that you build them in and the way that your groups are um, established and the storyline progresses? Or is that all that more naturalistic in-the-moment assessment, like what you were just talking about in the game as you scaffold and challenge them into assessment that way. And are you doing um, psychoeducation as part of it? Are you doing any processing afterwards or during um, to kind of reinforce that skill recognition? There are a lot of good questions inside that question. Yeah. <laughs> I think we should definitely talk out there after this is over because there's a lot of good stuff we should talk about in there. But yeah, I don't know if you want to throw that. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll answer a little bit of that. Um, the first is um, currently we're, we're not doing any clinical assessment stuff like uh, scale assessments or anything for intake or outtake for our groups, although it's something that may be in the near future so we can help support research for for the, this kind of thing. Going. Yeah, exactly. Um, wait, wait, I missed that. Oh, it's going to be necessary for efficacy studies yes, to have yes, the absolutely. validated skills? Um, so, uh, in addition to that, um, we, the groups that we run are not, they are, they are social skills groups, so they're intended to be groups that you, that you come into and you practice your skills. Mm-hmm. Um, we do some uh, breakdown um, 
in, in the group at times, but the idea is that these kids are all seeing their own therapist um, and that they're working on the, the actual conversation about those skills outside of the group and then getting a chance to practice them within kind of a safer setting. Um, but there's definitely a lot of pieces to that 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 kind of have to come together in order to make that work really well. Yeah, I, I would be happy to talk to you afterwards about, about all that. <laughs> Hi, so, um, so far this, I mean, we've talked about all like, the amazing like, amazing benefits of, uh, of RPGs and, and therapy and things like that, but I'm sure you have at some point encountered like a, a, a parent, a counselor, as you mentioned, I think in response to the very first question, or, or someone who is completely and totally unconvinced. And I am just curious like what your responses would be to you know, that, that kind of negativity of okay, there's there's no way you're just wasting you're wasting everyone's time. Like what's uh, like how do how do you respond to that in, in a way that someone from you know another generation that didn't explore this, like didn't have this at all, like what what's your response to them and, and um, just general your your general thoughts on how how you see this taking off in in the future in a wider wider scale because I mean you guys are the first ones I've heard of who are doing things like this you know do you know other people who are around the country kind of taking this on or basically just a, a general idea of the the difference between now and the thinking of people who have never been exposed to games like this. So there's two big questions in there, um, which is, what what do you do when you encounter a parent or a counselor or someone uh, who doesn't think this is such a great idea? Uh, and then also, um, where where is this going? When I encounter a parent, this, I, I actually love it um, because what I do is I get really excited about it. So as soon as as soon as I meet somebody and they go, oh, you mean that like unsocial game that people play in their basement? And I go, yeah, that one. Um, it's a great game. And then I explain I, with the understanding that if they had ever sat down, if they had ever been a fly on a wall watching one of these games, there's no way they would have that attitude. There's no way that they would come in with an understanding of being like, oh, that seems like a game that's not very social or that's not very helpful. Um, the game is, is so inherently good for you in so many ways, and especially in an environment where, uh, as, as the, the guy was saying before, where people are watching like Twitch videos 12 hours a day, like this is so much more social than that, and this is so much more beneficial than that, then the contrast is, is undeniable. So I know that they haven't had a chance to see that, and if I can just explain it to them in an excited way and demonstrate like, no, 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 believe me, it's awesome, it works so well, here's what it actually looks like. It's like people sitting down and having great conversations and say, sharing stories, and there are no screens involved, it's all paper and pencil and imagination. Um, and often when you explain those things, everybody changes their their tone. Sometimes it takes a little a little time and a little. Adam convinced my dad. <laughs> <laughs> my dad is from South Texas and had no idea what any of this stuff was. And Adam sat down. I tried several times to explain to him what this looked like. And Adam Adam bought him over 100%. My dad is now an investor in Willis Workshop. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. <laughs> I couldn't do it. Where do you see this in five years? Um, as we started doing this and talking about it, this is our fifth time to come speak at conventions about this. We find more and more people have been doing little things, like there are therapists who run a D&D &D group. 
here and there. And we're really just starting. This is a, this is the very beginning of talking about it, and uh, networking and talking about how we can talk about this more and getting out there. So, like Adam mentioned earlier, Hawk Robinson um, is really starting some amazing stuff. The Save Against Fear um, conference is in Pennsylvania every year, and there's panels, people talking about how they're using games in therapy. And I, I, my hope is eventually that we cre- can create a set of models, just like within drama therapy, there's different people using the same basic theories to do to for psychological psychological growth and change. And I think we can do the same thing. I think we can create a model of therapy that is about rolling dice and probability and creating stories together. I don't know how to get there, but... Um, We use this primarily for social skill building, but theoretically, this could be used for everything. You could use this for dealing with depression, for dealing with anxiety, for PTSD. This would be amazing for PTSD for anybody who's got got the background and is willing to to work with it, or or even like... um, uh, being victims of, of trauma, all of those things. Plus, on top of that, um, it gives so many tools at your disposal to be able to work with it. Uh, I, I fundamentally believe that with the right push, with, with, with the people kind of supporting it, with the people who are interested in, in it, helping to spread the word on it, that it's all about just building that momentum. And I, I know it could carry a long way, which is actually one of the biggest reasons that, that Adam and I started Wheelhouse Workshop with the knowledge that maybe we'll run these groups, maybe it'll be great, uh, maybe we'll figure out how, how to do this more and more and get better and better at it. But fundamentally, we are in the opportunity to, to help push this field and to help make something way, way bigger than just the two of us. Um, I was going to mention there are people around uh, the U.S. Uh, that are doing a lot of this work. There's stuff in other countries. I think I want to say Norway. Yeah, Norway has a lot of public funding to research on stuff like this, which is super cool. They do mostly LARPing, and I heard a study where they like closed down part of Oslo to LARP. What would happen after like an apocalypse? <laughs> it's it's cool stuff. Um, there's also a researcher who I think lives in Austin, uh, Sarah Lynn Bowman, who wrote a book. Oh, I'm going to forget the name. The Functions of Role-Playing Games. Settling um, Bowman. And she, uh, and she does a lot of LARP work. Um, but a lot of the principles are very similar to the, to the stuff that we're working with. So it's, it's happening. It's just, it's just sizzling under the surface right now. Cool. Thank you. Um, I was curious what system you need, like, not system, but what restriction you put on initial character building, like alignments or, you know... <coughs> they have to be neutral or better, or do you allow evil characters in your games, um, and how that dynamic, like, or how you steer people towards what they need to be? I don't really like the alignment system anyway, <laughs> so I don't really play with it, and even in my personal game, um, because we world build, we don't really use any of the said pantheon and the D- we use D&D for edition as I said earlier but we don't really use the pantheon very clearly anyway so there's not like punishments for changing alignment or anything like that anyway um, I've had one evil player who declared that he wanted to be evil and he was the necromancer I mentioned earlier and <laughs> I I talked to them about it and I, I was like well you know normally I, I don't let people be evil so let's talk about this being a journey of redemption for your character and it was this the the journey that he needed to go on. So it was, it worked, yeah, it was pretty nice. <laughs> it worked really well, because he was a necromancer, and necromancers tend to be loners, and they, he could create all the friends that he wanted. 
So that was his journey. His journey was realizing that he didn't need to create friends that he could control. He could actually reach in out into the world and, and risk being friends with living people. Too. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, we, do have, we do have some rules that we kind of put down, but they're all pretty soft rules. They're kind of based on uh, what are the players coming to the table with. Um, so generally we say, like, don't play evil characters. Um, we say... Uh, we most a lot of our players are brand new players who've never touched the game before, and so we start off games. We w- we want them to play first day. We don't want them to sit around and make characters for forever. So we we use pre-made characters for for everybody's first character. So we can say, do you want to be a fighter or a wizard? Awesome. Here you go. Now you're playing, um, and that works amazingly well for getting people introduced into the game. So. And you'd be amazed how much people will like dig into their first little pre-made character, and they'll they'll like really really love that that character. It's it's their first character, um, but all of that is is pretty flexible. Uh, I run a group. One of the groups that I run right now is a lot of very experienced players, and they're all. Um, they're, they will rules lawyer all over me, um, and they will. Uh, they're also playing a little higher level than a lot of our other players are, and uh, we're also playing a more serious campaign. They're they're all in their in their upper teens and uh, and kind of early twenties and stuff like that. So um, we play we deal with serious issues. Um, they don't know it yet, and they won't know it before this video comes. Out. They will know it before this video comes out, but. Uh, they are currently dealing with having to work through genocide um, and just make decisions that are going to either keep or wipe out all of the orcs on, in their world. Um, that opportunity for them to deal with more serious issues and more serious things is a super important thing for, for teenagers to have to learn to deal with. And so we'll adjust that game where it needs to be given the group of, a group of individuals. If we got one player who needs to be evil and, and so long as he's going to be helpful in the game and he's going to work through it within the game then we totally want to encourage him to do it in my, in my table of 10 year olds we like meet lizard men named a bug who likes to eat bugs <laughs> different context um, uh, I, I, I wanted to say really quick before we get on to the next question um, we're, we are out of time but I was told by, by the absolutely wonderful um, PAX Enforcer staff that we can stick around and answer questions for um, as long as we want so, <laughs> um, so we'll we'll stick around until there's until there's no more line. Um, but I wanted to let you guys be aware of the time because you had anywhere you needed to be. <laughs> Actually, I do I do have a technique for playing D and D with a big crowd um, that we could try really really briefly after. <laughs> Uh, we did find a three-day badge outside, so check, make sure you have yours. Oh, that's me. If you don't have yours, uh, okay, come see me at Soundboard after this, and we're going to figure out if the one I have is yours. Thank you so much. There's an identifying factor. Okay. <laughs> that was that really Possible. Thank you. Uh, my second question, <laughs> or I guess what's a question I want to do with the a story time about my descent into addiction of game mastering. And it's next it sounds like a healthy addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was a late bloomer. I did not play any D&D. I started with Age of, or Age of the Empire. Like Magic Flight Games. Did anyone else play that? Yeah. Yes, it is. Did anyone play the Starter Box? Okay. This is how my addiction started. Because I jumped into the Game Master. And the first is always free because my friends pitched in for the starter box and the cookbook. 
contacts. And I just dove into it and learned everything I could about this game and all the mechanics and how the dice rolls and how I can make it dramatic. And in our first game with the starter box, it was going pretty well. They were doing normal Star Wars stuff. They ran into a cantina, got into some shenanigans, were chased down by some Gamorrean guards, and made their way to the spaceport where they fought or tricked a Trandoshan named Trex, if anyone remembers him, and took his starship by luring him into the ship and then killing him. They were then pursued by the Empire out of Tatooine and chased by a couple of TIE fighters. And I think I made it so that the weapons were jammed in the ship and they needed to evade the TIE fighters to escape. That was supposed to, what was supposed to happen. What they did was said, hey, we still got the body of Trex. Can we open the uh, ramp and throw his body out and maybe hit one of the TIE fighters? <laughs> and I'm like, I accept your challenge. <laughs> so they did it. I rolled, got no failures. He rolled a uh, triumph. I'm like, crap, they just shot the TIE fighter. <laughs> I think the triumph means it knocks into the other TIE fighter. <laughs> with the body of the dude they just killed. That's <laughs> like, that was awesome! <laughs> Where's it going with this? <laughs> I don't know, but uh, those, those players are going to talk about the tracks yes. for forever. That's, that's we amazing. then decided to create the custom skill, Rogue Person, and gave it to the guy who threw tracks, which was our heavy gunner, Spouting Hunter, which was great, because we had someone playing as a Jawa, who was also force sensitive, and got a jet, a lightsaber later, so we throw the Jawa with the lightsaber all the time. Great! <laughs> I feel like there's a don't throw a dwarf joke somewhere. <laughs> no, do it. He's got a lightsaber. Do, do throw, do throw. <laughs> and all of our adventures have just been awesome. But the high point, or low point in the addiction, wasn't when I was up late cutting out like 50 TIE fighters for this epic space battle I had planned. I have pictures of this. But last week, when I was doing a new game with some new people, my new roommates, and I, we got to the end of this really hard story, and they had to fight these five uh, Mastiffs, which are the lizard dogs from episode two. And they just turned around and ate up this one NBC in the corner of the arena they were fighting in. And I got so visceral with the death, my roommate's girlfriend went... And I actually scared her by describing his death. I was like, oh, I've been GMing too much. <laughs> so moral I'm going to say is, if, you, if anyone in here is a player that has had any interest in GMing, Jumping it. And if you know a person who has a little interest in GMing, take them by the shoulders and shake them for like a good minute. And then tell them, jumping it. And then when they ask you, jump in what? Say, I, I want you to GM for us next week. It'd be really cool. Uh, I, I will say that it's, it took me a long time to learn to enjoy GMing. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, nobody would be the GM. In fact, we would rotate all the time because it was just uh, whoever had to be GM this week or something like that. Um, but then I started GMing in college and then uh, really picked it up 
uh, after college and grad school when we play in our personal game. And it is an amazing experience. I can't go back to being a player anymore. I go back to being a player and I get really bored. And I know, right? It's away from my turn and stuff. The GM never has, never has any downtime. You are always doing something. Uh, and you get so many great opportunities to help create these stories with the players. Uh, the stories that, that you're talking about, the stories that are going to stick with you for forever. Um, you're always going to have those stories with those players. It is an amazing opportunity. Um, find a, a group of supportive friends and start jamming. Um, it is super, super fun to do. Um, it does take some some ramping up, and it does take some adjustment. Some people are, are more prone to it than others, but uh, it, it absolutely can be incredibly rewarding. Um, that's awesome. I'm so glad that, that your group has such great stories to, to go along with it. Yeah. Oh, one last thing um, from the person before me, talking about evil characters. I read on a forum post about someone who had a group for one person was secretly evil and then betrayed everyone at the very end of the campaign and blew everybody's minds. <laughs> if you do it right, evil can be cool. Yeah, absolutely. With the, with the cooperation of a really good GM. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I waited all this time to in line and I was actually going to ask about the DM side of this as well. Um, sort of tying into that a little bit, um, DMs uh, have a different side of the uh, game playing. Um, have you ever tried to actually have somebody with that same kind of mindset that you're trying to help out actually take the DM role, and actually would that have any kind of differences in um, what it would do, I guess? <laughs> well, you know, in our games, the GM is kind of playing the role of the therapist, so it's not really it's not really our place to have the the player step into that role. We have helped them when they they wanted to play a game with their new friends from our groups. They wanted to play with them in a different setting at somebody's house, which is really the the benchmark of of, of success if they start becoming friends outside the group. Um, and they we have helped them come up with or. Um, I've shown them kind of what I'm doing behind the screen sometimes and things like that. Um, theoretically, it could be huge. I mean, the opportunities for leadership, for um, creative, the creative problem solving of the GM side, which is just a tremendous amount of constantly having to adapt to your players um, and uh, being able to work within the rules. I mean, there's a ton of benefits for being a GM that you uh, either get in spades as a GM, that you get in little bits as a player, or that you just don't get as a player, that, that you get specifically from being a GM. Um, there, there could be opportunity with somebody who had been a part of our groups where we might do like a co-GMing thing. We might sit, sit by, side by side with them, let them tell the story and then, and then uh, be able to help adjust and be kind of the therapist next to them, uh, which I think would be an amazing opportunity. We haven't yet had the, the player that I think would be suited and, and ready for that, but I think it could be incredible. All right, thanks. Yep. Uh, two questions. Uh, the first one, um, you talked a lot about collaboration, and on Friday there was a talk about uh, the, from the makers of Betrayal on House on the Hill as far as reasons to like break collaboration in a gameplay sense. But I also think there's a lot of advantages as far as like teaching people the difference between collaboration versus manipulation, both rooting out of manipulators and also like learning the the potential downfalls of being a manipulator once it sort of becomes found out. I was wondering if you guys have ever experimented with that in your game or whether you think that's like too high of a level of social planning for your groups or 
uh, I think most of my players are trying to manipulate each other anyway. So um, they're they're already in there without. Well, I'm constantly trying to resist them. Um, but um, they're in in much the same way. We we want them to learn to work together. Often our players are are players that are struggling to work together anyway. Um, so that's really their challenge point. Um, if we could get a group, uh, or when we get groups that are really, really cooperative, then we can start playing around with like what can they handle as a cooperative group. And, and Betrayal on House on Haunted Hill actually does a, a really good job of that, where they're basically saying like, you guys have been working together for a little while now. You're doing a good job. Way to way to collaborate. And now one of you one of you is going to stab each other, everybody else in the back. Um, so that idea works really well after you establish that everybody cooperates. And how, I mean, I wish I would have gone to that panel. It sounds like a really fun panel. Yeah. I think it, the, the nice thing about betrayal is that the, the person who betrays everybody is randomly chosen. So it's a little bit different than, than the player who's secretly the whole time planning to backstab everybody. I think it's just a different element there. So the, the game sets you up to do that. It's And everybody has the same contract when they come to the game. In a game like Dungeons & Dragons or any of these RPGs, it's supposed to be cooperative. If somebody backstabs the team, it depends on what the, team, what the party wants. If, they, if they're in it for the story, that's awesome. But if they're in it for the collaborative experience and teamwork, that's awful. Right. So it, it really depends on what the party wants and what the team wants. I did, um, in one of my games, I had, um, we're playing against a, an evil sorcerer named Pethesis, who had like um, somehow sacrificed his corporeal form or something like that. And so we basically turned it into a game of mafia. <laughs> Our whole session that day was Pethesis was like jumping bodies. And we, I had everybody close their eyes and then wake up and I tapped one of them on the shoulder. And then one of them was really Pethesis. And they had to debate and figure out who Pethesis was and then punch him. <laughs> that was the secret. And they eventually just started punching the, each other. The players didn't actually punch each other. That wasn't <laughs> the, the characters punched each other. <laughs> they had to decide who was Pethesis and then tell me they were punching each other. <laughs> Um, and that was a way that I, I, I provided the structure, sort of like uh, Betrayal does. I say, hey, this is the part where one of you is betraying everybody. But it's not you, it's really practices, and it's not you, it's your character. Awesome, thank you. Um, my second question was just, have you ever considered like podcasting these sessions? Just because for me, I've like, listened to them, and I've always felt like that's a great way to sort of pass on these lessons and provide this therapy to like a larger audience, get more people involved, that sort of thing. Confidentiality and, and things Absolutely. like that put put a lot of restrictions on that. Um, there might be a possibility for something like that in the in the future. And Adam and I have talked about producing and creating online content, uh, talking about how how to do better things in your games, how to become better players, stuff like that. So that that may be in the in the near future anyway. Um, although podcasting one of these games may may be a little a long ways off. We'd have to have a, a whole group that was really willing to to have a, yeah an online presence in that way, and that's. That, that may take away from their ability to be vulnerable within the game. Thank you. Um, I gathered from the conversation earlier that your patients kind of, the people you work with are self-selected, so they're coming to you and they're choosing. A lot of the kids that I work with have had experiences with mania and they liked it. Where it's like their, their best selves, the person that they would always want to be, is experiencing flights of ideas and doesn't need to sleep and almost has the kind of fantastical superpowers that characters create or that superheroes have in movies. Are you finding that 
the kids that come to you aren't just struggling with social skills, but they're looking for a way to stimulate that sensation of mania in a safe way. And how do you keep them safe so that they don't so they don't have a really good time and then decide not to take their meds? So I don't think any of the kids in our groups uh, have ever had a manic episode. Okay. Um, but there's a concern when it comes to this game and imagination games when you're dealing with anybody who has difficulty discerning reality from fiction. Um, and it's come up before the question of like using this with schizophrenics. Um, the, I, I would say I, I would be extremely wary in doing that. Because schizophrenics uh, have a hard time figuring out what's real and what's not real, um, and people under the under the influence of mania also suffer from a lot of those a lot of the delusions of that. Um, that being said, the idea of like uh, safe minor mania, the idea of expression of of like pure self and things like that, which is a lot of the concept of what goes into mania, um, th- that that could be. Uh, absolutely true, and just a, a function of how we fantasize, how we um, create fantasies within our within our heads for anything. Okay, uh, but do you guys use any grounding techniques, like when you're beginning the group, do you build energy in a positive way, and then kind of release it in a safe way at the end, so the kids go home, and they're kind of on the level, they're not on a high. Do you guys go through that process? Uh, every day at the start of group, we have a check-in. Okay. We do a checking question. Uh, we have we pass around a die. Everybody answers the checking question. That checking question changes every day, um, and the um, or every every group. And then at the end of session, you have a question that you would like to ask your group that I'm going to start covering um, to. Yes, at the end of the session, I always ask. And we take a little bit of time, normally about five minutes, um, to say what is something you learned about your character, and it lets us remove ourselves called de-rolling in drama therapy where we talk about our characters again what is something you learned about your character through this experience Um, we do tend to try to end our games on a high note because having the kids want to come back is such an important part of what we do so I think it would all depend on who the client was and how we needed to handle them for their their best needs to be met Um, we do put our we just started this thanks to Instagram we started putting our check-in questions on Facebook so if you follow us on Facebook, you can actually get on there and answer the check-in questions every Wednesday. So check it out. When you guys talked about um, you know having a, a client who wanted to have an evil alignment kind of as a catharsis that you dealt with that, like that was very impressive. Um, and it's one of the things that encouraged me to ask this question of you. So thank you. Uh, absolutely. So I'm currently a master's student in higher and adult education. I, my grad assistantship is, um, I advise a student leader group on campus. They are exec members, most of them are elected into these positions, and a good chunk of them are your stereotypical nerds. They are involved in a lot of the activities that we're all here for. Um, we recently completed our winter training in one of the sessions I developed. I was like, you know what, what the heck, I know a lot of them are going to like it, and the ones that don't know anything about it, are gonna get into it anyway. I made a super basic campaign 
and uh, but it was based on the challenges that they were going to face as student leaders. So one of the boss fights was administration, like a very specific administrator on our campus, and they had a role for things like scheduling meetings and the types of lingo that they were going to use in those meetings, and it went super well. They want to make it a weekly thing. Now, I go into my classes, and most of my classes are with, uh, I'll say, more well-seasoned adults. A lot of them have years on me. They've been in the work field for much longer than I have. I'm a traditional student. Uh, and when they hear role-playing uh, in terms of training, like for the corporate world, they think, oh, I, I hate role-playing because it's the, you have this role and I have this role, and we're going to talk it out and role-play it. But uh, when I bring in role-playing, like those role-playing aspects into my classes, as a training aspect, I'm like, wow, this, this could really be brought into like a business aspect. Uh, so I'm looking at it for development of, in a different aspect. So you've got like team building and those kinds of developments. Uh, so my question is, what you say you have worked with younger adults. Um, how, are you looking at maybe having, I guess, is there an interest for older groups? And what are some of the biggest challenges of working with those young adults versus the kids? And um, like the development and the assessment of the development of like after the sessions. I'd say right now one of the biggest challenges for us doing that is that this is a two-person enterprise right here, and we run out of time. We would love to. We would love to do that kind of thing. I don't think there's there's anything stopping us, but time itself. We'd love to do those kinds of things. And I, I would find that adult. The, the thing about working with adults is that there's um, a cool card where they'd have to really take up their cool card and tear it up and really get into the game. I think that's one of the hardest things about working with adults sometimes. Um, I've worked with some adults as a drama therapist. Um, getting them to role play or use their bodies is a really hard thing to get adults to do sometimes. Um, and so really working on giving them little step-by-step -step things to get them in the game would be the, the, the biggest challenge I would think of is, is letting them be comfortable making the choice to do something that's out of their comfort zone. If you can get them to talk in voices, that'd be huge. I can't get anybody to talk in voices. In my personal game, the only one with talking voices is him. It's me. Surprise, surprise. It's a really nice first step for, for getting people to, especially adults, to, to be involved in the game and, and be engaged in that way. Your, your question was huge, and we would love to talk to you about uh, a little more about it afterwards. Uh, there's so much in there, and I, I strongly, strongly encourage you to absolutely pursue it. Um, and and then to keep us informed as you as you are doing that work more and more, um, I think it's spectacular. Thank you. Hi, um, I also have a master's in education. Uh, hi, Red. Um, and I currently work as a graduation coach, and so what that is is a mix of an academic advisor and a life coach, basically for college students. Um, and my question really was revolving around: I meet with them for about an hour every two weeks, and so you know, not really an opportunity to bring them together. I'm not really supposed to know, like, I don't talk about other students with other students. Um, and so my question was, do you have any tips for smaller applications of this in, like, hourly type settings um, individually? And then um, the other one is, um, do you, did you see when you were building that list of benefits anything like academic crossover? Like, not just social skills, but even academic skills. Um, to answer the last question first, 
Um, we translate a lot of these things into literature, into characters and plot and story structure and things like that. The transition or the translation there is pretty clear. Working on um, understanding the characters have traits and things like that. Um, there's a lot of math and probability in the game if you needed to talk about that. Um, what was your first question? I'm so sorry, I got so excited. No, you're sorry. <laughs> uh, my first one was um, incorporating it into smaller time. Oh, um, we have situations. Yeah, we have situations come up where people can't come, and so we oftentimes run really small groups. But the nice thing about it is that the GM can play all the other characters. Sometimes it gets annoying, but we can um, play everybody that they need to interact with. Um, and we will oftentimes, um, we're lucky because we have two adults to be there, and so if we have one player show up that day for whatever reason, because life happens, um, the two of us can kind of co-DM and play all the NPCs that way too. And it works, it works surprisingly well. For one-on-one stuff, especially on uh, like a more coaching level, um, I might... I might recommend over RPGs like board games and card games and stuff um, just because they, they work so well for like drop in have a good time and you can have a conversation while you're doing it um, if you really want the in-depth I mean the thing that RPGs have is is in like real really deep the chance to like get into to deeper stuff that is harder to get into with with uh, just board games and card games so if you do want that that piece, you have to have an ongoing story. You have to have an ongoing narrative. Um, but you can create that ongoing narrative with big gaps in between. Um, Our sessions are an hour and a half. So we, we play the game with, with the check-in and the check-out in an hour and a half. So it's, it's very episodic, and it really it's why it's pretty easy to end, them, um, end the games with them one and more. is because the end of those sessions are pretty short. Thank you. I am currently under supervision, so, um, so my question was, I do work for an agency, um, my clients really love role-playing situations, that really just resonates with them, um, and, you know, when I do activities, that's their favorite thing to do, that's what they want to do. So, how do I sell this to my boss? Because I think it's very good. I don't have a lot of good advice for you on that, as I was unsuccessful in my internship selling it to my boss. Um, the uh, one way to sell it would be that there's a lot of opportunity in here to, to just teach general general good skills. Um, so you could just sell it as like a, a games for skills group. Um, that'd probably be the, the direction that I would take to, to help like really really get them. Uh, engaged in. I wouldn't try explaining all the stuff that is involved in Dungeons and Dragons necessarily and just talk about like uh, we're playing a game and it's a fun time and they'll have a fun time showing up to the group but they'll also be learning good skills so it's kind of tricking them into therapy um, and that'd probably be the most successful way to sell it to them. It's, it's a therapy that young people want to come to. I think that's a big thing for a lot of agencies. Um, one of our good friends and colleagues is um, reaching out and doing a lot of work with video games. He bought one of those uh, suitcases with a screen and he brings a Wii to his clients houses and the rapport building there is huge and it is meant that all these people who are used to just skip therapy sessions are now excited because it's a game so I think selling that that point what, what does your um, supervisor want what, is your, what are your supervisor's needs and selling them based on those needs because we could talk for days we're actually way over time on um, why this is good for you but we need to know why they need to hear that it's good for you I think that's the main thing Great. Um, with the time thing in mind, I think we'll, we'll, we'll cap the line with whoever's at the end. We'll kind of answer the last questions and then uh, wrap it up. Hi. Um, amazing 
Okay? I think this is like any aspiring therapist or licensed therapist, like under the age of 35, this is a wet room. Okay? Um, I see so much here with applications to self-efficacy and self-regulation and a little bit of CBT when we're talking about, you know, inner self-talk, which is amazing in, in kids who are experiencing social disconnect. One of my questions is, is how are you how are you theming real world application to this? Are you kind of giving you know five minutes? Okay, hey, what's happening in your week this week, and then kind of building your games around something like that, so that you know, are you know, are you just saying, okay, we're going to focus on building bullying this week, and you know how we're going to handle social situations like that, so you have those skills to relate in the outside world. And my second question is, is how are you getting your feedback? Are you getting it just from the kids? Are they coming and saying, oh yeah, we went over here and played this? Or are you kind of in touch with some of their actual, you know, their psychologists on the outside to kind of see how beneficial your therapy has been? Um, so to, to answer the first question, um, we, we um, do some collaboration with outside therapists. Um, we, we do check in and things like that. And when people show up, we have like little conversations about how things are going in their life. But, um, but for the most part, the application outside of the group um, is about how well they are getting a lot of the catharsis, a lot of the, the things within the group out of the way. Because um, they're bringing to the table what they need to work on. Um, or that's definitely the idea. Um, we check in with parents um, at least once a once a quarter. Our, our our groups are a quarter system to match up with the schools in Seattle. Um, at least once a quarter, we check in with with parents, if not more than that. And then we collaborate with uh, therapists outside of the group when when we need to, or with uh, teachers, with other other support people within that 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 client's life, so that they can have that kind of multifaceted uh, idea there. Um, I would love. We haven't had a lot of chances for this, but I would love to have more therapists who are uh, knowledgeable and interested in role-playing games to be able to to use the terminology of the stuff that they're currently facing in the game and, and have that connection back and forth for, for the kids in our group. Um, the reality, realistically, our group's only an hour and a half long. When you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, when you're playing any role-playing game, an hour and a half is not a particularly long period of time for being able to fit all the stuff in that, that you want to do. Um, so having... Uh, Check in and, and a little bit of check out, and, and having time to play the games and have it be a fun experience for them is often what we can provide kind of at this time. As our groups expand more and more, we're definitely hoping to be able to, to incorporate even, even more chunks of what's going on in their life and, and uh, what's, how that's being reflected within, within the game. Would you guys let us come watch? Uh, uh, we, we come observe? I'm actually, we, we're we, actually from the Seattle area, um, so we were, like, I was really excited about that, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm going to be applying to grad school at the end in December, straight on call at UW. Um, so we're, we're back and forth quite a bit, and if we ever get the opportunity, I would love to come in and just observe this and see what's happening. That is, because this is amazing. Like I said, it's, this, is, this is great. So send me an email, okay. because we do have a once-per-quarter um, guest to come in um, for somebody else to sit in with one caveat you have to play. That's fair enough. <laughs> you, you, can't, you can't walk out. Okay. Uh, but yeah, send me an email and we might be able to get you in for, That's awesome. for one okay. of the groups. Thank you. Hello. So I would just love to hear each of your favorite success story or your favorite aha moment that you saw with one of your players at the table or even oh, hearing how something you did at the table worked into their life outside. Um, 
going to do the, the runic tattoos story because I love that one. Uh, so we had this... Um, we had this one student who uh, we, we were playing around with a larger game. So we actually played two different tables because we, we get like eight to ten, ten kids in our in our groups, and we have to split them up into two different tables. with them. we set the two tables within the same world. So they're sometimes uh, going after different goals for the, for the same mission. When we first started off with that, we had a, a big group for a big check-in. So everybody was playing in one game for the first day, um, and we set them all in another soup tavern uh, and we had them uh, this particular soup tavern had a, a big magical chest that you had to put your weapons into and it would close and then all your weapons were locked up uh, again kind of forcing the players into frustration um, so they kind of meandered about in the soup tavern and then all of a sudden it was attacked by like a necromancer who teleported into the tavern and skeletons that, that went around this was uh, I think this was actually the Seamus the Seamus story well another player um, had designed his character uh, with, he was a big fan of Warhammer and he had designed his character with the idea that he had rune magic on, on the inside of his arms and he could summon his weapons at any point in time and there was this moment where we were sitting there for the game and we, he said, I summoned my weapons to me and we said, you can't, they're locked up in the chest it's a magical, magic proof chest, your weapons can't be summoned to you and he, he turned and he had this this horrified face of what do you mean I can't summon my... I, I designed my entire character. And you could see him like starting to get really worked up about it. He was so upset. He designed his entire character around this one concept that he summons his weapons to him. And we said, yeah, it doesn't work. What do you do? <laughs> and he turned around and he goes, I ripped the arms off the skeleton and start beating him with it. Said, that totally works. He started swinging skeleton arms around everywhere. And he thought it was the best thing ever. Um, and that turning point, that was a huge success. That was a, a huge recognition of, of where this game could be like immensely successful. Um, I'm going to tell a story I haven't told in a long time, so I'm sorry if this is, gets, it gets rambly, but there was the same um, story with line with the Necromancer that I was telling earlier. Um, I had all the players give me on a piece of paper um, what their character's deepest fear was, and I would have been playing this group for over a year, so this was a, a group that was pretty tight. And um, this was, I think, the same, the same bad guy who was, we played the Mafia game at a different time. And they, um, I described the scene where the, you know, the, 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 there's darkness that swirls around and everything goes black. And then when you open your eyes, you're all looking out of the same pair of eyes. And what you see is, and then I would describe one thing from the list of deepest fears, and I had done this in the moment. I didn't plan for this. I didn't plan ahead for what I was going to say. So, um, you know, there was one one situation where uh, the player said his character's deepest fear was being alone. And in this time, the rest of the players, it was like being John Malkovich, where everybody was inside the head of this character who was, and I described, like, you look down, you're wearing the clothes of an elf, and everybody knew that it was the elf ranger. And um, the other players, and these are all players who in real life struggle with social anxiety and social isolation, they voiced positive things into this other player's head where they said, you're, you're not alone. We're here. Your friends are always there for you. And it was just a beautiful moment. And then the necromancer's biggest fear was hurting his friends. And so I described a situation where they were in a dungeon and the, his friends, his party were chained to the wall and he was standing there with a, a whip and he said um, 
uh, I forgot what he said, but his, his, uh, the party members said, this isn't you. This is not you. Put down the weapon. This isn't you. And he looked up at them and he said, what if this is me? And they all, all these players with social anxiety and all this, these social challenges said, it's not. And then he put down the weapon. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. The third player was afraid of a world of cheese. <laughs> Yeah, it was nice. A little so <laughs> You're in a world and everything looks like it's made of cheese, but it's really rocks. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Well, that was pretty great. And it was really serious and it makes mine seem silly. You were talking about it being a business and how you guys are not great at the business side of things. What are the issues that you're like running into and in trying to run things? Like, is it something that the parents are paying for? What's what's the business part of it? Um, so our wheelhouse workshop is a is an LLC company. Um, we played around with being nonprofit, but as it turns out, in case you don't know, this is actually a huge pain in the butt to be a nonprofit. It doesn't well if you don't have money. Uh, yeah, absolutely true. So um, our clients all pay to come to our groups. We have a really, really significant sliding scale of everything from we have some clients coming for free to clients paying very little or paying half. Um, but uh, it's fifty dollars a session, and they come to our come to our groups, and they pay to to be there as a part of like a social a social group that they're attending. Um, when you're running, I, we both have other jobs. Um, my job is a therapist, and it takes up quite a bit of time. His job as a teacher takes up a tremendous amount of time. Um, and a lot of the challenges of running a business are in advertising, in like learning how to uh, take care of all the things you need to do as a business. We have to pay taxes as a business, and all of the things that are involved in that. And it takes up a lot of time. Uh, for every hour that we spend actually playing games, we probably spend another four hours running a business. Um, and some of that is that we're really bad at it, we don't know what we're doing, and we haven't streamlined anything. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm sure we could be doing a much better job <laughs> with most of that stuff. But um, it's, it's the logistics of, of what it is to, to take in money to run a business, to um, constantly be looking for growth. Um, we're, we're really trying to expand as much as we can and be able to offer the groups to more people, but there's frankly a limit on how many groups we can run. Uh, Just the two of you. Exactly. Like how, how, many, how many games of D&D do you think you could run in a week as a DM? and keep track of everything. Um, so we're talking about that idea and also attracting customers, attracting clients to, to the groups. Mostly people don't know we exist, so um, letting people know that we're out there and that we're a good service that their kids would really benefit from is sometimes a challenge by itself. And we didn't start off with any starting capital, so we basically had like the money in our pockets, and I designed our logo in uh, like the word processor. <laughs> you know? like, we did all this stuff starting with just nothing. Um, and like I designed this T-shirt in a word processor. Um, and this one. <laughs> so um, it's a lot of that stuff we've just been um, teaching ourselves, and that's been one of the biggest challenges. Is we like needed to figure out how to do taxes, and it was Google how to do taxes, <laughs> um, that kind of thing. Um, and we've learned a whole lot, and we've gotten a lot better at it. But starting off, we just assumed that this idea was so good, we could just have a website and people would just be googling this naturally and didn't really think about the fact that we would need to advertise or market or anything like that so like teaching myself how to advertise on Facebook it's been a really interesting game <laughs> well I hope you guys do well I hope it continues to get better and bigger because it's 
Thank you. I'm glad, I, I hope so too. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you everybody so much. It's been an amazing experience. Tax South is, has been totally awesome to us.